tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Dr. John Geller. Dr. John leads, and I believe founded, the Street Dog Coalition, which provides free veterinary care to pets of those experiencing homelessness with veterinary teams in about 50 U.S. cities. Many of the pets that they care for are cats, and a somewhat surprising given the challenges of living on the streets. And so that's going to be our focus of our conversation today. So I'd like to uh, welcome you to the show, Dr. John. Thanks so much, Stacey. And hello, everyone. Uh, you, you know, even though we are called the Street Dog Coalition, we definitely are, are committed to taking care of, of these, uh, well, we, you know, we could call street cats, but these are, these are pets of, of folks that are, that are homeless, not necessarily pets that are homeless. Before you got involved with the Street Dog Coalition, uh, Dr. John, Tell me a little bit about your experiences with cats and, you know, how'd you become passionate about cats? Yeah, it's, kind of, it's like some other people. I I'm almost say I've evolved from more of a dog person to more of a cat person. And, and right now, uh, my wife and I have, we have two cats and we're kind of in between dogs. And um, everyone knows what it's like with cats. They have this kind of a subtle entertainment value. Uh, and if they don't get sick, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cheap. It's a cheap entertainment. So I have a, a personal affection for cats, definitely. But I worked as an emergency veterinarian for uh, close to 25 years and dealt with so many, I mean, I would say our cases were close to equally divided between dogs and cats. And cats are uh, always a challenging patient because they kind of hide what's going on with them. And I learned that you have to really appreciate the subtleties of cats. I, you know, if, I think, if I'm wondering if a cat's really sick, I have to go in with the owner says, but sometimes, you know, you just scratch them in the right place, like right in front of their tail base. For in front of their tail, for example, and look at look at their reaction. So it's kind of a different uh, different diagnostic approach with cats. They're definitely more challenging that way because they will hide hide illness. And and so I've tried to take those those skills and and our and our teams kind of take that into account uh, when we see these cats on in the street clinic settings. Well, that's really very interesting. And I I guess I would agree with you. I went through a process with one of my cats, my last cat, Hooch. And I, I really feel like he was probably feeling a lot more than I was sensing at that time. And we all look back and should have, could have, would have. But some of those statements that you have, very true that I feel like maybe there was something that he was feeling that I wasn't able to be to react to or to see at, at that point in time. And, you know, with that being said, now you've got the, the Street Dog Coalition and you're out there. You're about to so just share with us first and foremost, what does the Street Dog Coalition do and, and what are those, what are your experiences? Sure. I'm glad to, you know, I was going to mention something else in regards to cats, just working with them. And, and you've probably heard about this too, but they obviously have to be handled a lot differently than dogs. Uh, and especially in the street setting, we, so what we do is we set up these mobile mobile veterinary clinics. And we have a lot of stuff with this. We can fit it all in the back of a truck. And we, we might set these up um, in the parking lot of a homeless shelter. We might set it up set it up in a, inside an a encampment of tents uh, with a homeless population. We might set it up, you know, in a church, a church parking lot too. So it could be anywhere 
we're, and we're very mobile and we kind of try to take the medicine to the people because uh, many, many pet owners find it challenging to travel. Uh, cat owners are able to travel on public transportation if they have their kitties in a carrier, but it's surprising how many cat owners show up at our clinics and the cats are just sitting on their shoulders, riding, you know, just riding without any kind of living without any kind of container. And sometimes they're on a very minimal leash. And so one of our biggest concerns, you know, we do these clinics are just with canopy tents and out of the back of trucks is um, you get cats around, you know, a large number of dogs and that can change their, their attitude. And we really worry about them running off never to be seen again. So we always set up a little cat hospital at our clinics that are usually outside, especially with COVID risk. And so we basically use a vehicle. I like the front front seat of my truck where we have two people and we use the console in the middle as, as kind of our exam table. And so even though the kitty might um, run around the truck and get hit, we know he's not, not going to run off. So we have to, to uh, that's one special provision with cats. And we also bring these cardboard uh, cardboard cat carriers that we give to people on the way out. So at least they have some security and now they can bring their, their cat on public transportation a lot more safely and and follow the regulations. So those are just a couple of the the challenges we see working with kitties at our at our clinics. Yeah, and that's not surprising. I, I work with a group um, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and we've done outdoor vaccination and microchipping clinics for years, which are free to anyone in the community. And they come, so we get probably like 300 folks at a time. And um, we have a variety of different tents, but there is one tent that they've really specially designed to try to help with the cats and lots of carriers are given away um, at those events for sure. So tell me a little bit more. So you go and you visit these different locations. Do you do vaccines as well as other things or primarily vaccinations? You know, we, we focus on preventive care. And so that does include the basics with vaccinations, but we also do, um, you know, we're definitely take care of parasite issues too. So there's a lot of real specialized products out there, heartworm preventive for cats, uh, flea and tick uh, prevent and mites prevention for cats. And we can also treat those conditions. I think we did a, a street clinic not too long ago when we had a bunch of kitties with, with ringworm. And uh, you know the owners were having some of that too. So there's these diseases that go between cats and people. And, and probably ringworm was one of the main ones, but also if a cat has mites, for example, those can be spread to peoples. So what we see is, um, and I'll mention this more, but we try to take care of both ends of the leash. So we're aware of these, these pet owners. Um, we'll ask them if they have any lesions or rashes on their arms if we see a kitty with that looks like that they have parasites too. And sometimes we will see it. We don't actually treat the owners, but we'll definitely steer them toward stored treatment, even though uh, sometimes the medications are pretty similar. But again, these clinics are, are mobile. Every city we're in, they're very different. We did a, just did a big clinic in Sacramento where there's so many homeless folks. Um, and we went right into the encampments where they're living. And we definitely saw, we see about 10%, 10 to 15% of our patients are cats. Because again, it's, it's a tougher scenario to, to live outside with a cat. And I'd say, you know, the majority of those pet owners are, of those cat owners are women living on the streets. And and those women face so many challenges that we're, you know, we're really well aware of. And some of them have dogs mainly for protection, but they have cats for companionship, just kind of give them some company because they're, they're so isolated. There's there so many stigmas, you know, attached to people that are homeless. And yeah, about 30% of them have some, are dealing with mental illness and 35% of them, you know, even more have some kind of addiction issue going on with alcohol or, 
or Sumsibucin. And even more of them have real significant underlying medical issues that aren't really being addressed. So, so we do have to, we take care of those cat, cat owners in a way by getting them care they need. Sometimes we actually have doctors or physician assistants at our clinics to help them out and mental health counselors. But the kidneys themselves is, is back to your question. It's mostly preventive care, but we also, we bring diagnostics in the field. We have diagnosed diabetic cats with just a check, simple blood glucose check. I have a portable ultrasound, which means I can use it to get urine from a kitty bladder, and then I can put it on a, a urine strip, just like people use to see if there's glucose and, and that with the blood. can We can diagnose diabetes. That's a tough disease for someone on the street to take care of because they have to give insulin injections, and they have to store, store that insulin refrigerated somehow. So it's just a kind of a case-by-case basis. So that's one of the challenges. We also do take care of things like ears, problems with ears, eyes, and skin pretty easily. And one of the more common things we might see is, say, a urinary tract infection, which is going to be more in a female cat than a block cat. And, and most, most female cats that are straining to urinate or trying to urinate a lot or have a blood in urine do have a urinary tract infection until proven otherwise. So we'll dispense antibiotics. We do have a, a pretty good selection of, of drugs. So we try to make it as much of a, a veterinary clinic on wheels as we can, but we also know where to draw the line. And sometimes we'll have to send a, a cat to a regular clinic and I can uh, t- describe a couple of cases where, where that happened and how that goes. And we, we have funding for that and we have a grant writer. And so we're always, always trying to beef up our funding to cover most of our costs are, are for that kind of outside care, additional care that's needed. And, and then we cover the cost of spaying and neutering, but we don't do it at our clinics. It's better, you know, I mean, there are vans that can, can do it or equipped for surgery, but we're not going to do surgery under a canopy tent. Right, right. Yeah. No, there are definitely various different ways to do spay-neuter surgery, but, you know, it may not be the right environment in your business model and the plan. Do you go back like quarterly or every six months or annually? You know, I'm thinking you're forming a relationship with these folks and then they're going to depend upon you down the road. So it sounds like you go back and visit the same locations again. That's really good. Really good point, Stacey. We, have, we want to make some kind of consistency. We're not just like here today and gone tomorrow, you know, fly by night. So uh, depending on our team leads, you know, we have these volunteer veterinarians that are what we call team leads. They put their team together. We provide them with all the supplies they need, insurance, protocols, paperwork, et cetera. They'll set up either kind of the minimal is, is a quarterly. They'll do a clinic every three months. Uh, but a number of our, our teams are doing them every month. And then I'm, I'm located in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, near CSU Veterinary School, where I went. And, and we do our clinics every week. Part of the reason we do that is we involve veterinary students. It's a great training opportunity for them because they, they really care about um, trying to provide care for people that can't afford it. And you know, I think everyone knows that veterinary care is probably getting a little more expensive and out of reach of more people every year. So we're, we're trying to fill that gap at least kind of starting at, at the bottom, so to speak, where folks, they really don't have any money. And that's why we, we will pay for spay-neuter vouchers. We call them vouchers. We'll pay for additional care vouchers. Sometimes we pay for emergency care. That's super expensive. And, you know, if a kitty's in really rough shape, sometimes euthanasia is the best choice. And, and we're going to send them to a place that can do a, do a really good job of that and cover the cost. So you said about 10 to 15% of the clients that you see are cats versus dogs. 
we talked a little bit about this before we hit the recording. You don't necessarily get a good sense of knowledge about how many of these folks might be feeding community cats or colonies of cats because they're obviously, they're not walking into this, they're not coming to the clinic. So it's not necessarily part of the conversation. I would get the sense that probably there is some support there. I would think that folks, I mean, if I, if I saw a colony of cats, I would feed them as anyone else would probably, but it doesn't sound like unless somebody has rescued a cat, like they found a cat and they've decided to adopt that cat. And then you see it in the, in the um, clinic space that that's sort of your connection with colony cats. Yeah, that's right. I, I know, you know, places like Las Vegas where people are just kind of living under the bushes. I know there's cats out there and they're probably, you know, they are probably are sharing food and company. But, and, and as you already know, there's kind of two definitions of, of street cats. There's kind of the feral cat colonies where they're community cats, so to speak. So a group as a whole is taking care of them, a population of people, group of people. And then what we, the cats we see are, are owned by individuals and they, t- they take care of them and, you know, they are, they are the cat's owners and they're, they're committed to doing it. One of our special challenges is, for example, is microchipping. And we do try to microchip because it's, um, it's really helpful when we can reunite a cat with an owner, especially a cat that's living outside. There's a good, good chance that, you know, some dogs could chase it off or whatever, something could happen. But a lot of the folks, we, we ask them, you know, they don't have an address and they may not even have a phone number. Um, although almost all of them have an email address. So one of the challenges is, is for example, um, communicating follow-up with pet owners when we can't get hold of them. We, we had a lady that we, we took care of uh, her cat for, and she told us she actually had two cats. She was just sleeping outside with her cats. Um, and we have some tough weather here in Colorado, but we have homeless cat owners all over the country, place like Buffalo, Minneapolis, uh, Cleveland. It's surprising how they do it. We, you know, on another note, we, we talk about a three dog night, which is an expression refers to came from Alaska, really, where folks would need to have three dogs to stay warm on a given night. You know, that, that'd be equivalent of having like a six cat night. And so some of these folks do have more, more than one cat. I'm not sure if it necessarily helps, helps them keep warm, but it, it definitely could. So there are a lot of real special challenges in taking care of these kitties that do live outside. We have some that live in cars with folks, and we always worry about is, you know, is it too hot and, or is it too cold? And, you know, managing litter boxes are, you know, big challenges. We always make sure, we always try to provide free pet food or make sure directing to a free pet food pantry. That's, those seem to be pretty accessible. And there's always a need for, you know, we bring collars and harnesses, harnesses and, and leashes for those kitties as well. As someone who's juggling it all, trying to keep people and pets together, you need easy access to resources to help you do just that. That's where Maddie's Pet Forum comes in. From adoption SOPs to TNR guidelines, you'll find it all. Have you joined yet? It's free. Visit forum.maddiesfund.org slash cats today. I'm Dr. Rachel Geller, cat behavior and retention specialist. Just like I have the answers to your cat behavior questions, Telecom Consultants has all of the answers for monthly cost reduction on your business telephone and utility bills. Save money and call 617-290-3374 and mention the Online Behavior Day for a no-cost bill analysis. If you're running a rescue, you're probably overloaded with tons of tasks pulling you in even more directions. 
dog and cat intakes, volunteers to communicate with, fosters to find and pass info to. And don't forget about managing the all-important donations. It's easy to become overwhelmed. Miss critical information and worst of all, lose volunteers. Buzz to the Rescues offers an integrative platform that can help you gain back your time, streamline your workload, and clearly communicate with everyone on your team. Learn more at www.rescueyourrescue.com and gain back your peace of mind today. Why do you think, and I can think of a variety of reasons, but let me see what you're seeing out right on the front lines. You know, why do you think it's hard for these folks to find temporary housing or special housing for them and their pets? I mean, is there is there a solution here? What would be your recommendations for helping these folks get off the streets? Yeah, Stacey, you, you hit a really important point. Most home shelters don't allow pets, and that includes cats, unless they're true service animals. And those are few and far between. In other words, they won't allow emotional support animals. Uh, I mean, sometimes they will allow them just if someone wants to allow them in. But in general, these folks are kind of sentenced to sleep outside or in their cars or wherever they can find to sleep because they can't go into homeless shelter because they have a pet. If they still will keep that pet because that pet means so, that bond means so much to them. So you kind of see the paradox. And so we're, we are working hard to try to create protocols where cats can, should be able to go into homeless shelters with people. There's definitely ways you can do it. It's a lot easier than dogs uh, that are often noisy, and that's an issue. Uh, and cats can live in a, in a container, you know, in a large crate or whatever, among other people and be just fine. And so making a homeless shelters pet friendly is, is a project that we are, we are working with homeless shelters directly on it. We say, not only should you be pet friendly, but we can provide screening. We can, we can make sure all these cats are vaccinated and treated for parasites before they come in one of any issues. They're, they're also not crazy cats. They're going to go attacking people. Um, and the, the other place we work specifically with is women's shelters, which uh, unfortunately some of them, um, most of them, probably 95% of them don't allow pets either. And I think that's really unfortunate because it's not that hard figured out. I think the first exception they should make is for cats. Okay, let's, we'll allow cats and we'll see about what we can figure out with dogs because you know cats are just, they're pretty easy keepers, as you know. So that's an issue almost everybody could be involved in, in trying to make that effort to, um, hey, does my local homeless shelter and my local women's shelter allow w- women with cats? A lot, of, a lot of women do have cats for the reasons I already mentioned. Company, and feel, you know, do the feelings of isolation and the trauma that they live through. Uh, and they don't, they don't want a potential abusive partner to ha- have anything to do with those cats. So they may not even go into a women's shelter if they can't take their cat. We've seen that too. Oh, yes. Yeah, we've heard that quite a bit that, you know, with with pets and with children, um, you know, women who are involved or people in general who are involved in an abusive relationship, the person that's receiving the abuse is afraid to leave because they're worried about their children. They're worried about their pets. You know, they're they just they don't want to put them in a vulnerable situation and they don't have a place to take them to, you know, get the support that they need. Children's a little bit different than pets, but there's significant challenges there. And it's a huge question. And I didn't actually realize it was that dire. I, I in New England, I feel there are quite a few shelters that will accept pets with with people. So I'm I was hopeful that those statistics were a little higher, but it sounds like it's incredibly challenging for for folks. And so I think that that should be a big project. What sort of activities are you doing at the Street Dog Coalition? Are you doing research on this issue or are you trying to put advocacy together? What or what can we do to help? 
So we did, we started with the research was we actually contacted, we took the hundred biggest cities in the United States and contacted all of the homeless shelters you know, that were listed that we could find. And of the ones that responded, I think we had 350 that responded. You know, we found that only 6% allowed pets. When they don't draw a delineation between cats and dogs. And I think actually just from talking to you, this idea occurred to me that maybe we should try to get, uh, get cats allowed first because they're so much easier and then look at dogs later, see how the cats go. So that's just, um, that's what I'm thinking right now. So we actually will work with homeless shelters specifically and say, hey, would you be up for trying to pilot? You know, let's try it for 90 days, allowing people with pets to come in. Maybe we should try, you know, people to have cats. How about that? Because we could screen those cats first, take care of them, make sure they're appropriate and, and they could have the appropriate carriers. And so they're not going to, you know, be wandering the halls of, of these places. Although I think some cats would be great therapy cats and, sh- and should wander the halls. And the people who don't have cats might appreciate them, but you know, not everybody loves cats, right? They might even be allergic. So those are the kind of things you have to think about, but it's all very doable. So again, uh, in terms of, of action and getting involved, folks could actually start this conversation with homeless shelters, especially women's shelters. There's just some general resistance that I'm really surprised with, especially with the women's shelters. They just look at it as taking on additional risk and they, they already have a lot of risk to deal with. But on the other hand, it's, I think it's very low, low risk with high benefits to allow women to bring their pets in, at least, at least cats, um, which would be much easier. So, so people can get involved in those conversations. It's not even really a veterinary conversation. Just have to say, yeah, we can make sure they get veterinary care if they need it. And a group like ours, we will go over, uh, and we are doing this, we all go over to the women's shelter, the one locally is starting to allow pets. And We'll do a house call, you know, at a women's shelter or shelter call, whatever, or arrange to get them to a vet if we have to. Going back to the uh, the 50 cities that you participate in, and it sounds like you have veterinarian, uh, volunteer veterinarians that sign up or, you know, how does that program work? If I know of a veterinarian in my community or an organization that would like to become part of the Street Dog Coalition, how would they do that? We don't actively recruit, but we want kind of veterinarians that have kind of a fire in their belly, so to speak, for this kind of work. We're trying to obviously spread things out, but we do have multiple veterinarians in, in cities like San Diego and LA and in Florida. Uh, There's so many homeless folks down there. So we have we do have quite a few veterinarians, but any veterinarian that's interested in this work can write on our website, which is thestreetdogcoalition.org. So you just have to put in Street Dog Coalition somewhere in your search. It'll pop up. has a whole section for veterinarians to sign up. It doesn't cost them anything. They get everything they need. They're never out of pocket. And then we work with them on an individual basis to see what's what's the best scenario. And so that's kind of how that process gets started. So we welcome anyone that knows a veterinarian that they think might enjoy doing this. And they only have to do it four times a year. At a minimum, we say they, they get hold of us and we get them all set up and, and sometimes travel out to to support them. Sounds great. What's uh, down the road? I mean, you have a lot to do. I'm just listening to the conversation. It's it's very, very busy. Do you have any specific goals up ahead for the Street Dog mm-hmm. Coalition? I've already mentioned this a few times, but we're using the terminology One Health. And it also you could also say collaborative care. But what it basically means is we are trying to support both ends of the leash. And so we've done these uh, community pet fairs, for example. And these are not actually homeless communities, just kind of low-income community, uh, even rural, small rural towns where we bring a, a team of, of medical professionals, doctors, PAs, medical students, veterinary professionals, veterinary students, social work professionals, addiction counselors, 
we do haircuts, we provide people food, we provide pet food, all under our umbrella. And we're kind of like a traveling circus. And we set up tents. Um, the last one we did, we had we had like three doctors and two medical students, and they worked out of a large 20 by 20 tent. That's the one health piece is caring for the pet owners as well as the pets. You can't really separate them when you're talking about working with groups of people that are struggling just you know, to find their, their next meal. There are so many issues that they're dealing with that, that I've already mentioned. So yeah, we're not going to be able to provide that care as veterinarians, but we can help them. We can get people that can provide the care and we can work with them. And people come to one of, one of those clinics, they get a menu. You want to see a doctor, you want to see a veterinarian. We even have dentists at our last one that were cleaning people's teeth and they each have their own tent. So it is like a circus. And, and by the way, it's really fun for us to do that kind of stuff. We travel out as a group and set up. So that's where we're hoping to go is, is all our clinics will be one health clinics. There'll be someone there that can help someone with an addiction issue, a housing issue, a medical issue, or even a haircut. Well, that's fantastic because I know one of the challenges that has plagued continually or continues to plague the veterinary world, as well as the healthcare space too, is it's called, I think it's moral distress or, you know, you, you're treating a client, you're treating a, a patient, you want to do more, but there's cost factors and, and there still are cost factors there, but then you also, you're seeing a person and they need help, but you're the veterinarian. So you're not able to sort of say, Hey, there's this extra resource for you. Now you can say, go to tent number three and, mm -hmm. and you can get the help rather than say, Oh, yep. You're on your way. Your, your cat might not have fleas, but you might have a bigger problem that you need some help with. And so, instead of feeling like I wasn't able to do anything and get frustrated, it's a feel-good thing, as you say, you're able to provide some extra supportive resources. That's exactly right, Stacey. That's kind of where we're heading and we're hoping to kind of lead to some degree the veterinary world in that direction, trying not to separate these pets as just um, uh, animals owned by people that we're taking care of. So it's, it's all one big thing. And even, even medical folks are starting to recognize the importance of, of veterinary care too, because someone could be um, really distressed if, if their animal is sick and they can't do anything about it. It, it can affect their whole, their own mental health for sure, uh, even their physical health. And, and it's, all, it's all just kind of tied together. Uh, but for some people, and it could be a dog or a cat, that's maybe the only thing that provides purpose to their lives. We have had people tell us that. They've had us tell us that they would commit suicide if they didn't have their pet. And so that's why that's kind of what drives what we do. Dr. John, um, if folks want to find out more about your organization, how would they do that? So everything is at the streetdogcoalition.org. And we have a, a really a lady named Katrina it run, kind of runs the back of the house, so to speak, for, for our group. And she does a great job. We have lots of, it shows uh, pictures of all of our teams. It lists where all the cities we're at. You kind of see pictures. We have a, a YouTube channel. So uh, some video of some of the stuff we're doing. And so I would just say, go there. You know, we're definitely, we definitely appreciate contributions, but I'm, I'm not, uh, not out here to necessarily, definitely not to hustle them. So we appreciate that kind of support, but also I had mentioned a few projects people can get involved in, and especially if they want to get a team going in their area. And then there's population of homeless pet owners, then all they have to do is find a veterinarian that wants to lead a team and uh, have them get hold of us. That's great. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Just keep on uh, having fun with those kitties because they are, they are cheap entertainment. Yeah, those cats, they're great. And it's wonderful to see them at the clinics. Really appreciate that. Dr. John, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. And I hope we'll have you on in the future. 
Thanks so much, Stacey. It was great to be on your show. Thank you. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Thank you.